You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Good evening, Revolution Church. I'm glad you guys are here. I see a couple of people with us uh, that that I just met. Nice to see you guys. Uh, The college students are gone, if you couldn't tell. So this is, this is, these are the real Christians. Um, that's, that is a joke I make every single time the college students go away. Just kidding. Uh, so what we are doing, uh, we started last week, we are celebrating Advent. Advent just means the coming of Christ. Uh, so right now we are in the Advent season, that's what we're celebrating, and we are in week two of three in our Advent series. And our goal in this series is that by contemplating on what God has done in sending the Savior, Jesus Christ, by contemplating that, that we would prepare our hearts to celebrate Christmas properly. Um, So this week we're going to be considering our second theme. Last week we looked at the needed Savior, how much we needed God to send a Savior to to accomplish the forgiveness of our sins, to give us a new representative. Um, And this week we're looking at the promised Savior, that God had promised us a Messiah. So tonight we're going to be all over the Old Testament, uh, and we're going to be looking all over the place at various prophecies and promises. I'm going to use those words interchangeably. Um, All of these promises concerning the Messiah who was to come. All of these promises concerning Jesus Christ all throughout the Old Testament. And in doing so, in looking at all these things, we're going to see God's sovereign hand protecting his promise to send a Savior. And we're going to see also how Jesus Christ is most certainly that Savior that was promised to us. Uh, So my goal, if you can get this in your head uh, as we're looking at all this, my goal is to show you the faithfulness of God in the coming of Christ. That God promised and then he delivered on that promise. Now scripture tells us to recount God's deeds. Uh, God, God... commands us to always be thinking on what he has done. You know, that's, one of the, that's one of like the top ten commands you'll read in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. Remember Israel. Remember what I've done. Recount the deeds that I've done. Uh, and David actually, in Psalm 9, he records his dedication to keeping that commandment. He says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. So that's what we're going to be doing this evening. We're going to be recounting all of God's wonderful promises and deeds in sending Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So with that being said, we're going to be in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I know that sounds like a really weird place to start a Christmas sermon, but buckle up because this is where we're jumping off from. It's a good time. Uh, Also, we're going to be looking at a ton of scripture this evening. So don't try to flip there. It's going to be up on the screen behind me. Uh, You'll never catch me is what I'm saying. I'm going to be jumping through so many spots. You're never going to catch me. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word. God, I pray that You would help us, uh, by Your grace, to be attentive this evening, um, to give Your Word the reverence that it deserves, 
your infallible, inspired word that you have given to us, the revelation of yourself, of all of your promises, of who you are and what you've done. God, I pray that we would see that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything you've promised. Lord, let us see your faithfulness this evening in bringing to pass exactly what you promised you would bring to pass. God, I pray that in this you would show us that we can trust you and that we would renew our faith in you. And we would know you will see us through wherever we are at. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So the end of verse 1 into verse 2 of that, of that passage in Romans we just read. Paul says he's an apostle of the gospel of God, which, was, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. All right, and I think this is something that we, we kind of forget occasionally as Christians. Like Paul's telling us here that the gospel didn't just fall into our lap. Right? Like it, like it wasn't just like a thing. Like there was nothing and then just, here's the gospel, there you go. Uh, or that Paul's also telling us that Jesus the Messiah didn't just appear out of the blue. Right? And again, this is something I think we can forget around Christmas time because it's just no context. Boom, there's this baby born named Jesus and he's the son of God. No context whatsoever. He's just like he dropped out of the sky. Um, but Paul is telling us that God had been promising this Messiah, this gospel for thousands of years. Four millennia to be exact. Now, whenever he says this gospel of God that was promised, just a, a quick definition of gospel. I want to get this in our heads. The gospel, as, as succinctly as I can put it, is, is good news, literally is what it means. It's good news towards sinners. It's this message that God would send a Savior to reverse the effects of sin. That God would send the Messiah to destroy the power of sin, Satan, and death. And that the Messiah, in his person and work, would come and cleanse the people of God of their sins and grant them entrance into his kingdom. In a nutshell, that's what the gospel is. The Messiah would defeat sin, Satan, and death, reverse the effects of sin, accomplish the forgiveness of sins for his people, and then grant them entrance into his kingdom. And that's what was promised. And Paul says that this, God, this gospel is the gospel of God, which means God possesses it. This is God's gospel. He is the owner of it. It was God who authored this gospel. God was the one who promised it through the mouths of the prophets. So that's something that we're going to have to keep in mind for what we're getting ready to do here in a minute, looking through the Old Testament. Every time you read a prophet prophesying something or anyone prophesying anything throughout the Old Testament, it's God speaking through them. So whatever they prophesy is God promising something through that person's mouth. Right, but it was God who promised the gospel through the mouths of the prophets, that God is the one who brought it to pass. It's his gospel. So Paul, again, is telling us that throughout the Old Testament, there are promises concerning the gospel and the Messiah. Now, in light of what Paul says here in Romans, we are going to go back through the Old Testament and take a look at some. We don't have time to look at all, because last time I counted, there's a few hundred prophecies concerning the Messiah we don't have that kind of time this evening. Uh, but we're going to look at some of the promises concerning the gospel uh, and the Messiah. And to do that, I'm going to do something that makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Normally, I like to spend a lot of time in one text and, and, and give you the best uh, exposition of that text that I can. Uh, but tonight, I am going to do my best to narrate the major plot of the Old Testament. Yeah, we're going from Genesis to Malachi. It's going to rule. Uh, but that's, that's, that's what I'm aiming at. And I want us to see that the promises get more and more specific all right, the Messiah, God reveals him more and more and more. And as we do that, 
as we look at this plot of the Old Testament and see how the promises get more specific, we are going to see God every step of the way through history working and protecting his promised gospel. And that's what I want us to see. Get that in your mind. God protects his promise and brings it to pass. That's what we're aiming at. So let's start back in Genesis. Right, you guys will remember, uh, as we talked about last week, in the first two chapters, God created everything in six days. He spoke everything that is into existence, including mankind. And then God looks, he surveys all of his work, and he says, it is very good. He declares it to be very good. Everything is perfect. No sickness, no death, no pain, no strife had entered into the world yet. God and man were at peace. Complete and utter peace. God and man were friends. Man did not need a mediator to go before God because sin had not yet entered into the world. And then God, as we talked about last week, makes the covenant of works with Adam. Right? Don't eat of that tree. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you will live forever. If you disobey my commandment, you will die. Right? So he makes the covenant of works, which in the nutshell is obey me and live forever. Disobey me and you will die. My wrath will come upon you. And then chapter 3 comes in Genesis. And Adam and Eve are deceived by the serpent. You guys know the story. They're deceived by the serpent who is the devil, Satan. And they eat of the forbidden tree. They eat of the fruit. Break the covenant of works. And then we come to read this. Genesis chapter 3. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Right, so just right off the bat, I just want to get something clear. God doesn't ask these questions because he is unaware of what has happened. Right, God condescends to ask questions to human beings that they might actually have a conversation with him because he knows everything. Um, and also, I think personally, so that they would admit their guilt. But I just wanted to get that out of the way. So God's confronting them over their sin, finds them guilty. And then we read this. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So what this begins is a round of curses. God first curses the serpent, and then he goes on to curse uh, the, man, or the woman, and then he curses the man. But the next verse is of most importance. This curse on the serpent is also a promise toward Adam and Eve. Verse 15, this is the core. To the serpent, God says, I will put en enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So God here in Genesis 3.15 promises that one day a man, right, it says he, one day a man, an offspring of Eve, would be born to bruise the serpent's head. This is one of the rare times that I actually like the NIV better. The NIV says he will come and crush the serpent's head. I think that's the thrust of the idea here. That one day a serpent crusher would come to destroy Satan and destroy his works. But also, God says that that serpent will 
bruise the man's heel. He'll strike the man's heel, which means that he will fatally wound the man who is coming to crush him. So again, God promises that a man will someday come and destroy the serpent. And to paraphrase Matthew Henry, a great Bible commentator, he says, no sooner had man inflicted the wound of sin than God gave the promise of the remedy. I love that. Genesis 3. I don't know if you guys realize this or not. This is nine verses after we read about the fall of man into sin. Nine verses later, the same day that mankind falls into sin, God promises them the Savior of mankind. They have just ruined everything, and God promises them a Savior. We actually call verse 15 in theology, people will call it the Proto-Evangelium. There's your $5 word of the day, everyone. It means the first gospel. Right, yeah, big words make me feel smart, so I like to use them. Uh, but yeah, verse 15 is the first gospel, that God promised the gospel. As soon as sin entered into the world, he promises a Savior would come. Now, the Messiah did not immediately come, obviously, but the promise was given, which means the stage is set for the rest of human history. But here's a question. Why did God give the promise to Adam and Eve? Why did he give them a promise to send them a Savior? Of course, it's because he's merciful for certain, but I know some people think maybe God is reacting to the fall of mankind, right? Like he didn't foresee this one coming, right? And that, that God giving this promise of a Messiah is plan B. Absolutely not. A piece of theology we're going to go into, we're going to look at the covenants for a second. God gave the promise of a Messiah to fallen mankind because of a covenant that God had made with himself. This is what we call the covenant of redemption, that God had made with himself. And here's the nutshell of the covenant of redemption. The Godhead, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, had made a pact with himself to save sinners before he created the world. God ordained that the fall of man would happen. And before he ordained that man would fall into sin, he made a covenant with himself to save sinners. And he did this for his own glory, that he would be glorified in showing justice to sinners, but in also saving them. He did this for his own glory, and he also did this out of great love and compassion towards sinners. And here's what that covenant looks like, essentially. God the Father promises himself, right? God promises himself, the Father specifically, that he would choose a people to be saved. And God the Son agrees to come and do the work to save those people. And God the Holy Spirit agrees to apply the work of the Son to the people and to dwell in them and to sanctify them and make them more like the Son. Again, it's the gospel message. But but the Godhead had promised this to himself. And I bring this up, and I know you're thinking, okay, well, what's the point of talking about the covenant of redemption in light of this? In light of the entire Old Testament that we're about to look at, I want you guys to know that every single promise and every action that you will read about in the Bible, everything that you will see in all of human history works together to serve the covenant of redemption. Everything. Everything you read about in the Bible works together to serve this promise that God made to himself to save sinners for his own glory. Everything is subservient to that. And this is why God gave the promise of a Messiah to fallen man in Genesis 3. And we're going to see that God will continually act to make sure that this covenant of redemption comes to pass. So as we go on, just a note here, I want us to see God's faithfulness to his word. I can't stress that enough to get that into your hearts. God's faithfulness to his word. Specifically, his faithfulness to his promise as we see how Satan in the world tries to stop the promise from happening. 
So keep that in your mind. But try to put yourself in Adam and Eve's shoes. All right? It's, it's kind of fun. Try to put yourself, pretend that you don't know the end of the story for the rest of this time. All right? You don't know that Jesus actually ends up being born. In Adam and Eve's shoes, they're thinking, God has promised that one of our descendants will fix the mess that we've created. I wonder who it will be. And then they have Cain and Abel. Right? Could it be them? Like, honestly, they had to have been thinking, maybe it's going to be Cain. Maybe Cain is the one who's going to crush the serpent. Maybe it's going to be Abel. But as we read in Genesis 4, Cain succumbs to sin. He is conquered by the serpent, and he murders his brother Abel. So it's clearly not going to be either of those two. But then they conceive and have a third son, Seth. Maybe it's going to be Seth. Well, enough time passes and Seth dies. And sin is still in the world. And there has been no Savior come. Clearly, it's not going to be Seth. Then we fast forward on some generations to the time of Noah. And by the time we get to Noah, the, the, the hum, humanity, the entire human race had become, as Genesis 6 says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And God says, I regret that I had made them. And God determines to kill all of them. I'm going to start over. I'm going to kill the entire human race. He says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. But then in verse 8 of Genesis 6, it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So consider this. God becomes so fed up with mankind's wickedness that he says, I am going to kill the entire human race. But consider this. What of the promise? If God kills every human being, what of the promised one who would be born of Eve? who would be an offspring, a descendant of Adam and Eve. What happens to the promise then? It would be ruined. Which is why God showed grace to Noah and his family. And he saves eight people out of the entire population in the world at that time. He saves eight people from his flood of wrath. Why would he save them? Is it because they didn't deserve to die? No, they were sinners as well. It says Noah finds favor in God's eyes. God was being gracious. Why? So that the promise would continue. Because if God kills everyone, the promise is made void. So God saves Noah and his family. Then we fast forward, and we come to the era of the Tower of, ba- of Babel. Right? And at this time, as far as we can tell from reading the text, the entire world is pagan. No one worships the true God whenever we come to the Tower of Babel. How can the promised seed come if no one fears the living God? It's a great question. How can it happen? How can the promised one come? And then we get to Genesis 12, and we see that God chooses a pagan out of the land of Ur named Abram so that the promise might continue in him. Again, this is the sovereignty of God at work to make sure this promise comes. He says, oh, no one worships me? Yeah, I'm going to pick this guy, and I'm going to make him worship me. That's the sovereignty of God to keep his promise. Right? We read this in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, who becomes Abraham later. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So of all the promises God makes to Abram here, I want to look at two. One, he says that Abram will become a great nation. That Abram will have many descendants. Later in Genesis it says, he will have descendants as numerous as the sands of the seashore. And two, God promises Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed in you. 
Now follow me on this. God promised that the Messiah would come and end the curse for all of mankind. That the promised serpent crusher would crush the works of the devil for mankind. And God says, Abram, your family is going to, you are going to bless all families of the earth. Which means that the Messiah is going to come from Abram's bloodline. The Messiah is going to bless all the world. The Messiah is going to come from Abram's family. But then if you read on in Genesis, time passes. And Abram and Sarah have no children themselves. Think about this from their perspective. Abram and Sarah, you're in your 60s. You have no children yet. But God has made a promise that you're going to bless all the nations and that you're going to have descendants. They get into their 70s, no children. 80s, no children. They get to their 90s, they still have no children. Sarah is way past childbearing years. What of God's promise now? God promised that the descendant of Eve, the offspring of Eve, was going to come through Abram's line. What now? Sarah is barren. What of the promise? Then God intervenes touches the womb of Sarah while she is in her 90s and allows her to conceive a child with Abraham. He opens her womb and she conceives a son. And that son's name is Isaac, the child of the promise. And again, we're going to fast forward through a lot of stuff here. Isaac then eventually goes on and he has a son named Jacob. Jacob gets his name changed to Israel and Israel has 12 sons. So again, we're looking at Abram's line. This is the line that the Messiah is supposed to come through. And Israel, Isaac's son, has 12 children. These are the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. And on his deathbed, Israel, their father, blesses and prophesies over his sons. And he says this to Judah. Genesis 49.10 The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now the scepter here is a reference to kingship. What, what, what Israel, the man, just prophesied over his son Judah, who is the patriarch of the tribe of Judah, he says, there is going to be an eternal king come from your line. God promised this through Israel the father. There's going to be an eternal king come from Judah's line. It says, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. That all peoples of all nations will fall before this king that is going to come from Judah's line. Alright, so again, we see the promise get more specific. This Messiah, this eternal ruler, this eternal king is coming from Judah's line. And then the twelve tribes of Israel all move to Egypt. And everything works out pretty well for them for a while. But then a new pharaoh comes to power. We're in the book of Exodus now. A new pharaoh comes to power, and he enslaves the 12 tribes. He enslaves the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. And then he commands that all male Israelite children are to be killed when they're born. Do you see the threat to the promise? A man born in the tribe of Judah? If, if, if the pharaoh has his way, the line of Judah will die, and the promise will die with it. And what does God do? You know the story. You've seen the Charlton Heston movie. God raises up Moses. He raises up Moses to free the people from Egypt. And he leads them out of slavery and into the promised land. There's the sovereignty of God again. I will do miraculous things to make sure that my line that I've chosen doesn't die. And later on, Israel asks for a king once they're settled in the land that God gave them. And God gives them King David. My favorite king. Gives them King David from Judah's tribe. Right? You see, David from the line of Judah. And David ends up being a good king. 
And I'm sure the people are thinking, oh, could David be this one that was promised? That the scepter wouldn't depart from the kingdom? Is he this eternal king? Is David the promised one who would crush the serpent? And if you read about David's life, you find out there's no way that that's possible. Because he is definitely succumbs to Satan. David sins miserably in a lot of ways throughout his life. He's not going to be the Messiah. But then God graciously makes this promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Verses 12 and 13, he says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Skip into verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God promises David, your throne is to be forever. And he's also already promised that a king from Judah will reign forever. So the Messiah, the promise has just gotten more specific. He's going to be a descendant of David. And this Davidic king will reign, reign forever. So you can see how the promise gets more specific. At first, God says, I'm going to send a man to crush the serpent. I'm going to send a man from Abram's line to crush the serpent. I'm going to send a man from Judah, the son of Abram, Judah's tribe, David's family. He's getting more and more specific. So now all eyes are on David's family, and generations pass. And here's actually a little-known story, or from my experience, most people don't know this. We come to 2 Kings chapter 11, and a godless woman named uh, Athaliah comes to a little bit of power. And she tries to kill David's entire royal bloodline. And she kills every descendant of David, every male descendant of David, except for one. A baby, a year-old baby named Joash. And God actually uses one of that wicked woman's own relatives to save that baby. Why? To preserve the line of David that he had promised. A king will come from David, down to one descendant of David living at the time. And God intervened to make sure that that child lives. So again, all eyes are on David's family from now on. The bloodline has been prophesied as specific as it's going to get. A descendant of King David is going to be the serpent crusher. But not only was the bloodline prophesied about, details about the Messiah's birth and his life and his work and his identity were promised. And I think it's because God wants his people to be very aware when their Messiah comes. He wants them to know that it is the one that he has promised all this time. So before we go into all these prophecies, a couple of things. We're going to be looking at a lot of scripture right now. Um, so you, you should want to read the Bible anyway. So just go, bear with me on this. Um, but know this. As we read these prophecies, prophecy in the Old Testament was often twofold. So I'm not divorcing this from their proper context. Right? Almost all prophecies, especially in the Psalms, and in Isaiah, there was an immediate fulfillment for the people at that time. But then there's a second fulfillment that we see in the Messiah. All right, so just know that much prophecy in the Old Testament was twofold. There was an immediate meaning, and then there was a future meaning as well. But the circumstances surrounding the birth of the serpent crusher, the Messiah, was foretold. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So this one who is from old, from ancient days, is going to come forth from Bethlehem. So the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. 
And what's funny is it says Bethlehem Ephrathah. There are actually two Bethlehems. So God gets really specific. He says, no, it's going to be that one, not the other one. Right? So God gets really specific on where the Messiah is going to be born. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, there's another prophecy concerning his birth, probably the most famous one. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. So again, of all the promises, this is the biggest indicator of Messiah. He'll be born of a virgin. How often does that happen? Um, never. And just so you know, if anyone ever tells you that today, they're lying. Um, you've seen some of those goofy articles on Facebook, right? This girl swears that she's, imp- I'm like, oh, she having the Savior? Um, anyway. But not only his birth, where he would be born, and that he would be born of a Savior, but also what the Messiah's life would entail. And pay attention to these, because a lot of people don't know all of these. What the Messiah's life would entail, what he would do, the things that would happen to him were foretold. Isaiah 61, 1, the first part of it. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is spoken from the Messiah's perspective. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. So this Messiah is going to come and preach good news to those who have been marginalized, those who have been cast down and cast out. The Messiah comes to preach good news to them. Isaiah 53 tells us that this Messiah is going to live a life of rejection. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This Messiah is going to be rejected by the very ones that he comes to save. He is going to suffer and he is going to be hated by men. In Psalm 41, David prophesies that the Messiah is going to be betrayed by a close friend. He says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Lift his heel means he's going to try to kick my teeth in. In Psalm 22, we read about the suffering of the Messiah, and it gets specific. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. And he goes on to say, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And from my clothing they cast lots. This is spoken that's going to happen to the Messiah. That he is to suffer. To be pierced in his hands and feet. To be mocked in his death. And that he during this time would feel forsaken by God in the midst of his suffering. But There's a good ray of hope. In the midst of all this suffering of the Messiah, Psalm 16, the Messiah says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Why? For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You will not abandon me to the grave. The Messiah will not be left to rot in the grave. He will not see corruption. He will be raised from the dead. So again, so there's the life and things that are going to happen to the Messiah. But God actually then also tells the people specifically how the Messiah is going to defeat the serpent. 
How exactly that's going to work, and we read that again, Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So we see that the Messiah would have the iniquities and sins of the people laid upon himself. This is the supernatural work of the Messiah. Later on in that passage, we see that it's the Lord's good plan to crush this Messiah for his people as a substitute for them. That he would take their sins and then be crushed in their place. Isaiah 53 then goes on to tell us that he will make many righteous by taking the penalty for their sins. And out of his anguish and suffering that the Messiah will be satisfied and receive his reward. But then the question becomes, how could a mere man save the people in this way? If he's just going to be a descendant of David, what's going to make this Messiah so special that he is going to be able to do that which God has promised the Messiah would do? David wasn't able to do it. Cain wasn't able to do it. None of these people that have been born thus far have been able to do it. No offspring of Eve has been able to do this. And that's why God promises the identity of the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 9, very famous time around passage around Christmas. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So here we're told he will be called Mighty God. How can this Messiah do what God has promised the Messiah would do. He will be God in the flesh. God says that he himself will come to accomplish this promise. And God can certainly do what God has promised God would do. In fact, this is the only way that the promise can come to pass. And then God makes the identity of the Messiah more specific. I will tell of the decree, Psalm 2. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This Messiah will be called the Son of God. So again, keep in mind all of these promises. God gets very specific. He promises great, grand things about the Messiah. He promises how the Messiah is going to suffer, how he is going to save his people, where he was going to be born, what kind of a mother he's going to be born to. And with all of these prophecies, there are still a couple of big events that happen in the plot of the Old Testament. God sends the people into Babylon in exile. So all of these promises have been given. Almost every prophet has already come. God sends the people into exile for their idolatry. And while they're in captivity, much like they were enslaved in Egypt, as they are enslaved again and kept against their will in Babylon, a wicked man named Haman. You guys have heard this story if you've read the book of Esther. Haman rises up and he wants to kill every Jew in Babylon. If he succeeds... Even with all of these promises, as specific as God has gotten, all the great grand promises he's, got, he's given, if Haman succeeds, what of the promise? It's made void. God has made a liar and proven to be unfaithful. But what does God do? He raises up Esther. He raises up Mordecai. They thwart Haman's plan. Haman actually ends up getting killed. Um, glory to God for that. And the Jewish people live. Ezra and Nehemiah, those books then record that the Jewish people come back from the exile on the king's dime and rebuild the temple, reinstitute the worship of God. And then at that time, there is one final prophet after they come back from exile, after God rescues them from their Babylonian captivity. 
There's one final prophet named Malachi, and God promises this through him. Malachi chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So Malachi prophesies that there is going to be a forerunner, a messenger to come before the Messiah to prepare his way. And Malachi is in the back of your Old Testament because he is the last prophet in the Old Testament. God goes utterly silent after Malachi. So please hear me on this. I know it's taken us some time to get to this point, but I want you to see all of the promises of God. God had made all of these promises concerning the Messiah, just like Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 that we read, this gospel that was promised through his prophets recorded in the Holy Scriptures. God makes promises for 3,600 years from Adam to Malachi. 3,600 years of promises. And then God goes silent for four centuries. He says nothing. He makes no more promises about the Messiah. He does nothing. He says nothing. Again, pretend that you don't know the end of the story. I really want us to get this in our heads if we're going to celebrate Christmas rightly. Imagine how the Israelites felt. Where is God? Where is God? Where is our descendant from David that he promised? Where is our king that he said he would send us? Where is the serpent crusher? Where is the fulfillment of all of these promises? Is God a liar? Will he be faithful to what he has said? Those thoughts have to be going through their head. You guys know the song we sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. The first verse of that really, uh, really captures the idea that, of how the people would have felt. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel who mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. God, please send Emmanuel. Please send the one that you've been promising. But imagine the doubt that they must have had. Will God do it? He has been promising for four millennia, 4,000 years, will he do it? Has he forgotten his promise? God had safeguarded his promise for all of these years, rescuing Noah's family, bringing Israel out of Egypt, saving David's line, saving them from the Babylonian exile. Has God now abandoned his covenant of redemption? How would the people of God feel after 400 years of silence 4,000 years of promise. And they've not seen the fruition of it come to pass yet. But then after 400 years of silence, this happens. Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end and Mary said to the angel how will this be since I'm a virgin and the angel answered her the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you therefore the child to be born will be called holy the Son of God can you imagine the joy that Mary felt in hearing those words 400 years of silence 
And the angel Gabriel just tells her, the time has come. The wait is over. The promised one, David's king, David's son, and David's lord, the serpent crusher, the son of God, is here. He's coming. All of the promises are coming true. The promised gospel is happening. I know it's taken us a long time to get to this point in the sermon this evening. Can you feel the joy that the shepherds would have felt hearing this announced to them? That Mary would have felt hearing this announced to her? God is being faithful to what he promised. Have you ever wondered why literally thousands of angels appear in the sky to sing God's praises the night Christ is born? It's not just because they're stoked that Jesus has come. For certain that, but more deep, more deep than that, they know that the promise to Adam and Eve has come. They know that God is vindicating himself and proving himself to be faithful. That the covenant of redemption is coming to pass and that the covenant of grace is about to be ratified in the blood of this child that has been born. All of human history has led to this point and heaven can't help but to rejoice. God is being faithful to what he promised. He's doing what he said. All of the promises are coming to pass. God is vindicating himself. So let's just roll through the life of Christ very briefly. Jesus is born to the line of David, through his adoptive father, Joseph. He gets the line. This is David's descendant. He is born in Bethlehem as God had promised. He is born of a virgin as God had promised. Before he starts his public ministry as an adult, his cousin, a messenger, a forerunner, John the Baptist goes before him preaching repentance to prepare the way for the Messiah as God had promised. Jesus then in his ministry teaches that he is God come in the flesh. He calls himself the Son of God as God had promised. Jesus then preaches good news to the poor as God had promised. Jesus does the miracle that the Messiah was promised to do. Jesus is then be, is, is hated and rejected by men as God said he would be. He's eventually betrayed by a close friend who literally just got done eating his bread and then lifts his heel against him, Judas, as God had promised. And he is handed over to the authorities to be crucified where his hands and feet are pierced. And he is mocked and he suffers as God had promised. And on the cross, he takes the sins of the people and makes atonement for them as a substitute to reconcile them to God and make the unrighteous righteous as God had promised. And he dies on the tree as God had promised. And then he is raised on the third day and the Holy One is not allowed to see decay or corruption. He is resurrected. All of this as God had promised to his people for 4,000 years. I was repetitious for a reason. Do you see the point that I'm making? I hope you can see that our God is a faithful God. That He will do all that He has promised. Always. As you consider the narrative of the Old Testament, I hope you can see how God's promise stands. And that how every time that Satan or the world tries to stop God's redemptive purposes from happening, he overrules it and makes it subservient to his people for their salvation. This is the hand of God throughout history. In the coming of the Messiah, we can see clearly something that the Bible declares from cover to cover. And that is our God reigns. And nothing can stop him from being faithful to every promise towards his people. After 4,000 years, when the fullness of time had come, God did exactly what he said he would do. 
So as we celebrate the first advent of Christ, as we celebrate the coming of the gospel, we are celebrating the faithfulness of God. That he truly loves his people. And that we can actually trust him in all things. As we consider the coming of Christ, we are not just celebrating the forgiveness of sins. Though for certain we are celebrating that, glory to God. But we are also celebrating that the Lord makes all things subservient to his plans. That he safeguards his word and that nothing can stop him from doing good for his people. So in light of God's faithfulness, I have two things I want us to consider. I think this is very timely. The first one, at least, because I know a handful of you guys are going through a bunch of junk. Maybe you are currently in a place in your life where you feel like the Israelites during the silent period. During those four centuries where God says nothing. And it appears that God is doing nothing. Maybe that's where you're at right now. You are wondering, for whatever reason, if God is going to be faithful to you in this season of your life. If God is going to see you through this situation. I don't know what it is. Maybe you've received awful news. Someone has died. Someone is sick. You've lost your job. There's dispute in your family. You're having problems at work. You're having problems at home. You feel distant from God. You feel as if God has abandoned you. You're questioning your salvation. Whatever it may be. Could be many things. But you're asking yourself the question, does God care? Will God see me through? Will he be faithful to me? And I want to encourage you, if you're a Christian, that God sending the Messiah is proof that he will indeed be faithful to you. It's proof. He will see you through wherever you're at. His promise to send the serpent crusher is the biggest promise that he ever made. And he did it. He made good on his word. Everything else that we could deal with, every other promise that God would be faithful to us and not forsake us, is so small in comparison to how God had to weave all of human history together to bring us the Messiah. Surely he is trustworthy. Now, I am not saying that God is going to do what you want him to do. I'm not saying that. But I do know that God will be with you if you belong to him. And that he will overrule all things for your salvation and your sanctification, just as he did throughout the entire Old Testament. He will overrule all things for your good. And he will continue to do good for you. And the second thing that I want us to consider, this is for everybody, I don't care what you're going through. This is for everyone. If you're in the trenches right now, this can help lift you up out of the trenches. Behold your sovereign, faithful God as you consider the Christ's coming. Behold a God who orchestrates all things for your good and his glory. Behold a God who is faithful. Look to the Christ who is the fulfillment of all of God's promises and stand in reverent awe of God's goodness and his kindness and his faithfulness to his word. Because every promise finds its yes and amen in Christ. Look to Jesus and see the faithfulness of God. Let your heart be filled with wonder and gladness as you remember that God has sent your Savior. Stand in awe of a sovereign good God. 
So this Christmas, as you celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus, I want you to remember the sovereign hand of God Almighty working through history to bring him to us. So I'll leave you guys with this. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Thanks be to God, our God does what he promises. And nothing can stop him from being faithful to his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that every word you've ever spoken is truth. Because you are the fountainhead of all that is true and good. God, we thank you for being faithful to a people who do not deserve your faithfulness. God, we thank you for the covenant of redemption that you've made to yourself to save us. That you are the reason why you are faithful to us, not us. God, I pray you deepen our trust. And for the people who are in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trial, and for the people who are getting ready to go through it, I pray that they'll be able to look to the promised Savior and know that God will see them through. God, increase our faith. But we thank you so much for sending your Son to us to accomplish our salvation, to prove your covenant faithfulness to your people. Let us bask in that and stand in awe of your sovereignty and of your faithfulness to us. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.